last three feet. As an entrepreneur, you always second guess yourself. Did I read into what people want right? Am I making the right choices? The key to making a good hire? Let's say you were the candidate. If you don't see us for what we really are, our culture, our warts, etc., and you're just an anxious candidate. You always want the right people working for you. And we need to also see you for what you really are. So let's just have a candid conversation between the two of us. Then one of us is going to make a mistake. We'll both go away saying I wish we hadn't gotten together. The best way to build your career, no matter what the business is. Work from the bottom up. Engineering, operations, whoever you're supervising. If you can't explain to them or talk with them at the level that they can understand and perform at, then it's going to be very difficult for you to be able to be successful and do your job. This is the language of business. A weekly podcast designed to inform and inspire entrepreneurs and anyone thinking about a startup. Learn about strategies that work and strategies that don't work. I'm executive producer Don Kelly. Our host is Greg Stoller, Harvard MBA and senior lecturer at Boston University Questrom School of Business. On this episode, we talk about the last three feet. That's the space between customers and frontline employees. Too often, managers never get there. Here's Greg Stoller. Thanks, Don. Are you a book smart executive? Is your brilliant business plan collecting dust? If you haven't gotten the memo, it's all about effective implementation. There's often a big difference between business on paper and how it is practiced in reality. Case in point, when I was studying hotel management in college and later working at the Imperial Hotel in Tokyo, I was constantly reminded of the phrase, the last three feet, or closing the distance between hotel personnel and the guests. Meanwhile, the executives in the back office were 30 miles away. My first guest is Craig Sanders, a business leader with a consistent track record of successfully aiding organizations in transition. Craig, welcome to the Language of Business. Thank you, Greg. Most of my career has been in tech field service. So in that environment, it would include inventory management, installation, customer care, and also the network operating center, which operates on a 24 by 7 basis. So this isn't something that was defined to a certain geography or something that no. operations would differ from location to location? No. Even if it was a operation that had multiple locations, like it was in 40 states, but it was headquartered out of Miami, this still is a field service organization. And if you had to categorize your corporate turnaround victories over the years into different buckets, right. how large would the one be on operational success? Well, I've had eight turnarounds, and there's been operational issues in every one of them. That's not to say that there weren't other issues in other parts of the company. But if you think about it, operations usually has the largest number of employees, vehicles, and therefore the expenses. So if that's not running efficiently, then you've got trouble in the company. What we've done to be successful is we put in a quality service strategy that includes a, the vision, metrics to uh, manage it, consistent follow-up, and then tie that to year in performance. And what would you say the difference is between strategy and tactics when it comes to operations? A tactic would be more on the day-to-day. You're answering the phone in a certain period of time. That's sure. a tactic. Yep. But you've got to have a strategy. And by the way, even though we define it as the biggest part of the company's operations, anything that touches a customer should be an element of the overall strategy. But how and when would you draw the line between good logistical efficiency versus simply good people or process management? You've always got to have good people. But let me give you an example of a vision statement that we put in. And I use vision maybe different than somebody else. To me, a vision is where you want to be down the road in three to five years, not where you are now. Okay. So you've got to grow to that. Yeah. One such strategy was to deliver quality carrier service in the southeast. The Southeast is important. It had national aspirations before the new team was brought in. And now quality is a subjective term. 
what you may think is good quality may not be good quality to me without standards. Since we're a network organization, you have yep. to be reliable. And since you're a service organization, you have to be responsive. So the, the taking it and revising it would be to deliver reliable and responsive carrier solutions in the southeast. And then you'd lay your metrics against that. This strategy works because in one location, we reduce customer churn 41% on a year-over-year basis. And customer churn is customers leaving, going with another carrier? That's correct. And so when you reduce it 41%, you can imagine that your customer base increases, and it was the first year the customer base grew in three years. I'm Greg Stoller, and my guest is Craig Sanders, a managing director specializing in turnarounds and a mentor to C-level interim executives. I know you've served four years as a U.S. Army officer, including service as a company commander and as a pilot. How has your military training and background affected your ability to positively manage companies operationally? Well, since I started in the military, you have to give credit to the fact that my style must be based on being able to delegate, lead, assign accountability, plan, strong planning in the military, and attention to detail. In one situation, my second day in the company, it was a large company, I was given a company-wide task force to be in the market within 90 days. And if we didn't, then it was a regulatory window, and if we didn't, we were locked out. We uh, put the plan together, but the training department said it'll take six months to train everybody. Well, that just wasn't going to work, so we changed the name of the game. Right. Set up what you probably would call a war room, brought okay. in the subject matter experts. Much different than the war room you would you yes. formally associate right. with. Right. Let's say a tactical room. Right. <laughs> so you bring in the subject matter experts. Right. And then the salesman would call in with the proposal templates. We also control the pricing. And by the end of the day, we could FedEx out to the salesman a formal proposal for him to deliver the next day. And you're able to keep the regulators happy, but also have your own metrics in place to say we did it within a six-month period. Well, even better than that. We obtained over $110 million in 90 days. So that was uh, a technique that we used that I would draw on the military. I happen to think that stuff is terrific, but my next question is then why do so many executives seemingly disregard operations, opting instead to focus on the sexier areas of corporate strategy and marketing? It's because it's intoxicating. Everybody gets excited. And the CEO is going around talking to other people about buying their company. The executives and the employees also, once they find out, are pleased that the company is going to grow. There may be more opportunities for them. And so that part is the intoxicating part. Where they get into trouble is on the integration side. And if they don't move quickly to integrate the two entities, they'll end up with two customer care systems, two accounting systems, and two IT systems. And so a lot of redundancy, but not the good sort of redundancy. That well, we then the about. CEO and the board approved the third acquisition. So now you're caught out in the open. You're sure. not prepared for it. And so that third acquisition will be very troublesome. Craig, you've come from the military. You obviously did this for multiple years, managing people and processes. Do you think there's a science to effectively implementing operations, or is it really done by gut feel? Well, first of all, it takes a while to learn for a young person to learn to right. read his gut. At least it took me a while. To lead the organization, they have to know where you're going. And this is where the strategy comes in and the vision. And I've talked to you before about to deliver reliable and responsive care sure. solutions in the southeast. But I haven't mentioned any of the metrics, yep. which is a very important element of it. Reliability in a network organization is the five nines. 99.999% of the time, that network better be up. And on the responsiveness side, since you're a service organization, you want the departments to commit, the customer care, the network operating center, and even the receptionist to commit to answering the phone in three rings or less. So this is like six sigma on steroids if it has to be the five right. nines. I wouldn't go that far, but the five nines is very strong. Right, right. In fact, I can't say that we've achieved five nines on a year-to-date basis. Some months we were 100, but on a year-to-date basis we were four nines in the six, sure. which is still very high standards. But just one more point. The billing department commits to getting the, the invoices out in five days or less. 
And then the regulatory department, if we were to ever have a complaint come in from the Public Utility Commission, would commit to having that resolved in three days or less. On a strategic basis, it's more than just operations. Anything it's that touches... It's full integration, it's right. It's full, you're utilizing the entire company to provide excellent service. Young people might take a while to have their gut feel get to where they need to be. When you're reviewing a resume, how do you measure someone's likely success of the operational area? When we post a position, we know what we're looking for. And since we're in a field service organization, we'd probably look for somebody with a similar background and maybe a similar sized organization. The risk would be less there if he or she had those skills. But if they were coming from a manufacturing environment or a low tech service environment, I think the risk would be higher. Let's say you were the candidate. So let's have a candid conversation because if you, Greg, see us wrong and don't see us for what we really are, our culture, our warts, et cetera, and you're just an anxious candidate, then one of us is going to make a mistake. And we need to also see you for what you really are. So let's just have a candid conversation between the two of us, because if you don't see us, then after you join, the smile is going to come off your face. And after the honeymoon period ends, everybody's going to go away disappointed. We'll both go away saying, I wish we hadn't gotten together. Thanks, Craig. Craig Sanders, turnaround specialist and executive mentor. Coming up, it's not a startup, a turnaround, or a pivot. It's a new branch on a growing tree. But first, why the last three feet can be the most important. Back to Greg Stoller. Paul Laskow has spent much of his career either on the shop floor or in the field, definitely not in the back office. He has extensive experience in manufacturing and distribution, and in particular, in the areas of assembly, quality, inventory management, customer support, and shipping. He is currently the founder of Save Energy Systems, a very cool company, I might add which uses a demand-limiting controller to deliver simple, innovative solutions that reduce energy costs for businesses. Paul, welcome. Thank you very much. Our first guest approached operations from a mentoring and a people management perspective. However, you've been equally successful by focusing on engineering. How would different executive backgrounds potentially affect a company's operational results? Obviously, everyone comes with their own bias, just based on their own personal experience as to what they have. I've always been a very hands-on type person and have really looked at it people need to delegate. There's a lot that I like to oversee personally. So I think that has a lot of influence as to how people approach the problem and come up with their own solutions. Tell us the Save Energy Systems story. Sure. I actually had a previous company, which was an electronic contract manufacturing company. The electric bills would drive me crazy. During the winter, they'd be like $4,000. During the summer, they'd be about $14,000. I started looking around to see what was out that I could use to control the AC so that I wasn't getting hit with these big demand charges and high use charges because this was a significant cost that was impacting the revenue of the company. What is a demand limiting controller? So the demand limiting controller actually comes in and manages all of the HVAC units concurrently and relative to one another so it limits them all from running at the same time thereby limiting the demand which is a portion of a commercial electric bill that is billed by the utility company in order to compensate for the peak amount of use. So you're not only controlling peak use, but you're also not cooling or heating an empty office. Correct. When you're acquiring the type of equipment for Save Energy Systems, do you think it's better to purchase it off the shelf? We try to buy what we can off the shelf and then modify what we can. If necessary, then we go to a custom engineering design and solution. If you need to maximize the efficiency of the equipment, say, a year after it was first purchased, is your existing knowledge base sufficient with the off-the-shelf components? Really, our existing knowledge base is sufficient with off-the-shelf components. The components that are off-the-shelf are still doing everything we want them to do. Otherwise, 
otherwise we'd end up going with a more customized solution. So where's the secret sauce? The approach. It's a matter of that we're managing everything concurrently and relative to one another. And that's really the secret sauce in that we're looking at everything all at one time before we turn on something else so we know what's going on throughout the entire facility. And you're making money in the sales of the equipment, not necessarily in the savings that your customers are able to acquire. Correct. We're really not interested in sharing of the savings. It's a one-time acquisition from the customer perspective, and they can go off and really generate savings for years and years to come. And if you need to do service calls, of course, that's incremental revenue. Exactly. We have incremental revenue there, as well as we have an annual software update service that people can subscribe to. We now offer a monitoring service that we will monitor what's going on with the system and if necessary take the appropriate action in order to make sure that the mechanical functionality is running properly. What would you say are the three biggest challenges that Save Energy Systems is facing today? This is not unusual for most companies. Obviously, money. We're a startup company. Startup companies use a lot of money. We can actually use some additional financial resources. And are you saying that your margins could be higher or you need to raise more money or a little bit of both? We need to raise more money. Our margins are great. Right. We need to raise more money, which brings me to the second one, is obviously increased sales. Sure. Right now, because we have actually limited resources available, we have a limited sales force, we're not actually able to do everything we want to be able to do. And so we can't penetrate the markets as rapidly as we'd like to. If we could get more sales, we'd have more margins. We wouldn't need the money. Right. And of course, if you, ra- if you raised more money, you could also hire more sales. Exactly. And, right. 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 And then the third thing is some additional technical resources. As I talk to customers, every customer I talk to gives me more and new ideas as to how to expand the system. I'm Greg Stoller, and we're talking with Paul Laskow, the CEO of Save Energy Systems. He spends a lot of his time thinking how to innovate the engineering operations of his business. So how much of your time as CEO is spent on engineering and operations versus management of the company as a whole? Probably about 25 to 30% of the time is really spent on the engineering operations, particularly around specific projects. The rest of it is broken out between sales, administration, financials, whatever. But are you going to the actual job sites, not only to do the initial presentation, but to supervise the installation, or is that a couple of layers removed from you? At this point in the size we are, I stop by every job site to make right. sure it's going well. Why am I not surprised? <laughs> <laughs> There's somebody else on site that's actually managing the installation, but I want to maintain that relationship with the customer, make sure that they're happy. And to let them know that the person sitting in the corner office actually cares. Absolutely. Right. How key is operations to your business compared with, as you mentioned before, everything else? You know, operations is really the face of the company to the customer. So as far as I'm concerned, that is key and critical and has to deliver what we promise. If our sales guys promise something and we can't deliver it, we look bad to the customer, we get a bad name, we get a bad reputation, it's going to be disastrous to the company. What do you think are the two biggest areas of operations companies have to be cognizant of these days? First and foremost is quality. If you're not delivering quality, there's no reason to be in business. People just expect it and they demand it. Right. And the second thing is really having people trained properly to perform their job once and get it done and move on. If you're not operationally efficient with trained people, you can't make money. You're saying we can't live in a three-call society where it takes three phone calls to get anything done. Exactly. And it doesn't matter whether we're actually out at a customer site doing install or actually doing manufacturing or fabrication internally. It has to be done once, has to be done right, and then you move on. It's amazing how you always have time to go back and fix the problem. You're rushing to get it done right the first time. Spend the time, get it done right the first time. What career advice would you have for someone looking to start their career in operations or engineering? Work from the bottom up. Engineering, operations, I always felt that it's important to be able to do 
or have the knowledge to at least to be able to do whoever you're supervising. If you can't explain to them or talk with them at the level that they can understand and perform at, then it's going to be very difficult for you to be able to be successful and do your job. Even though it might be a hit to your ego that for the first three to five years of your career, you actually have to be in the trenches doing the non-sexy part of the business before you actually move into being a supervisor of management. Learning the job in the trenches gives you skills that you carry forward with you for the rest of your career. What would you say are the one or two biggest lessons that you gleaned when you started in the trenches? From my perspective, it was really how to think and troubleshoot a technical solution in real time. We were building circuit boards and we had to find out why they weren't working and customers were waiting for the solution and we had to be able to do it. And the second one was really manufacturing automation. How do we go off and build high quality production items and we had to be able to do it. And the second one was really uh, manufacturing um, automation. How do we go off and build high quality production items using minimal amount of labor to do it? Great. Thanks, Paul. My pleasure. Paul Laskow. Still to come on the language of business, it's not a startup, a turnaround, or a pivot. It's a new branch on a growing tree when the language of business continues. Our sponsor is Swapons. Want to experience something truly unique on the other side of your phone? Swapons. Personalize your phone case like never before. Pick your case model and color. Sleek design, anti slip sides. Drop test protection. Past and exceeded. Choose your swaps. There are thousands of great designs. Sports, travel, nature, and more. Or create your own swaps. Upload your pics or your business logo. Add custom frames. Swap-ons. They started Infinite Swap for you. Live it, love it, swap it. Swapons.com. You're listening to the Language of Business Podcast. Once again, here's Greg Stoller. Thanks, Don. While in business school, Jody Mendoza came up with an idea to provide Latin Americans living in the greater Boston area with a new nightclub destination. Even before graduating, she found downtown space to rent and successfully navigated a partnership agreement. But that all seems like ancient history as her vision, Mojito's Nightclub, has not only come to fruition, but has also already been operating for eight years. Now, Jody believes she's in a position to do even better by creatively renovating her back of house or behind the scenes space, adding food facilities so she can begin serving tapas style lunch. She's well aware yet undaunted by the large number of choices already competing in the Boston luncheon scene, yet still believes she can add great value. Jody, welcome to the Language of Business. Thank you. When did you first open Mojitos Nightclub and how have things changed operationally over the years? We opened Mojitos in 2005 and things have changed very, very much. We started off as more of a friendly with the staff, kind of a casual business environment, almost a mom-and-pop feel. Then we kind of graduated and grew into a more corporate, a lot more rules, a lot more regulation, and we found that rather than to keep people back, that really allowed them to thrive more. Would you say that the nightclub is running well now operationally? And at what point did you wake up one morning and say, we got it? I'm very happy with where it is right now. I would say, and this is looking back. Sure. At the time, of course, you always think you're doing quite well. Right. And then it's I was... It's amazing how that happens. It, right? <laughs> In 2010, we did a round of renovations. And what that allowed us to do was kind of respond to what the customers had been asking for. It allowed us to maximize the 
utilization of the space. It allowed us to make the, the customer front of house flow. Space, you're saying, not exactly. the, right, not the, the front back of house. house. Right. And it allowed us to make the flow of traffic much better within the club. So the things were just smoother. And okay. it was just a better experience. But let's talk about the customer counts for a second. Mm-hmm. How do you get customers, albeit on multiple levels, how do you control them without offending them given that this is an entertainment venue? It's a really interesting point, and because of the type of business we have, there are so many rules and regulations that we need to follow. We have to kind of approach it in a couple different ways. The first is we have to make sure that our staff are very well-educated, and they're well-educated in terms of how to communicate When you say well-educated in terms of work in college or in graduate school or well-trained and well-educated in the ways that you do your thing? Exactly. Well-educated in the sense that they need to be able to communicate our message, they need to believe in what it is that they're saying, and they need to be able to say it in a way that when patrons come in, they're not going to feel offended that they've been redirected. And there's also a certain amount of education in terms of the customer, and that comes through marketing. So the customers know when they come in to Mojitos that they're going to have maybe a little bit of a longer wait outside, maybe a few more rules and regulations that they might experience at another place, but the overall experience is well worth the extra effort. So the education, the training that you put your employees through, is it used on gut feel? Is it based on some widespread accepted management approach? Of course, I take bits and pieces from everything, from from the experience I got learning at Boston College, but also just the experience I have in the business is largely what drives it. So that you understand what you can expect of your employees. You understand the limits of what you can push them. You understand what customers are willing, where their limits are as well, so that you can still maintain a very positive and great experience for them, but still be able to comply with all the city rules and regulations. How has your expansion into food gone? And when and why did you decide to expand in this fashion? We really just reached maximum capacity. From the nightclub perspective. From the nightclub right. perspective. You know, there's only a certain number of nights that people want to go out and right. have a nightclub experience. So I take it you're not open seven days a week? We are not. Okay. So we were just open pretty much three, sometimes four nights a week. So I assume it will be Thursday, Friday, Saturday, maybe Sunday? Exactly. Yeah. Now, the problem is we're located in downtown. Right. So obviously rents are very high. There's a lot of expenses that come with that. At the same time, we have a gorgeous space that's completely underutilized. It's closed for business, but it's just a wide open, beautiful space, and we really wanted to get And more you're not only it. talking Monday through Wednesday, you're talking during the daytime hours as well. Exactly. Okay. How different are the skill sets and the knowledge base to go from nightclub management and making it run well, taking a phrase from you, into tapestile lunch? Not just between nightclub and restaurant, but I would say kind of across any sort of business where you deal with people, you're using a pretty common skill set. You need to understand people. You need to understand how to get the most out of your staff. You need to have a very clear, coherent message, and you need to be able to communicate that message and to have your staff further communicate that message. How much of your staff do you use either on the non-operating nights for mojitos or during the day for lunch? And of course, the corollary to that question is how much of your customer base is overlapping? No overlap on customer base, no overlap on staff with the exception of management. Are you hoping to cross market? Very little. It's really an entirely different concept, and I don't want to cannibalize off of the business that we have. Sure. Now, if you'll excuse the pun, since you're in the nightclub business, what keeps you up at night, if anything, about this latest expansion into food? 
no matter what, as an entrepreneur, you always second guess yourself. Right. I always wonder, did I read into what people want right? Am I making the right choices? Am I communicating the choices properly to the staff and to the customers? This isn't your first day on the job. I mean, you've been at this since 2005. Do you think that you're making more right decisions than wrong decisions? Absolutely. But I also think that one of the strengths that I have is that I never get comfortable. Obviously, you've been able to articulate what's made the nightclub successful. How will you determine your break-even? Or how will you determine success? It all comes down to, I mean, this is a business. Right. So it comes down to the bottom line. At what point are we profitable? Right. But there is a bit of time between starting it to where you expect to become profitable. And all of those other things you mentioned are things that give me a higher tolerance towards making it all worthwhile. That time between starting it and actually gaining profitability, then you're worried about, well, what about our brand overall? How are we maximizing our So what you're saying is you might be able to accept six months, even nine months of losses, knowing that you're going to come out stronger on the other end because you have to start somewhere. Exactly. And because it is a supporting business to the other business, then there is a higher threshold. You can use the profits from one to subsidize the losses of the other. Are you sorry you didn't do this three years ago? No, I think it's perfect timing. Anything sooner might have been too tough. Great. Thanks, Jody. Jody Mendoza, nightclub entrepreneur and now restaurateur. Thanks, Greg. And that's our episode this week. You can find links to all the people and companies we've interviewed on the show notes. In 2019, we'll have some great new content coming up on the language business. If you subscribe and leave a rating on Apple Podcasts, it'll be a huge help. Thank you. Our director is Mark Mandel. Social media by Jennifer Powell of ExcellentWriters.com. Consulting producer is Helen Tierney of Happy Accident Productions. Audio editing and voiceover by yours truly. Special thanks to Mike Carruthers of SomethingYouShouldKnow.net. For Greg Stoller and the entire team, I'm executive producer Don Kelly. Happy New Year, and thanks for listening to The Language of Business.